Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 23, or the text is printed in the bulletin for you. It's our last Sunday now in a um, trilogy on Psalm 23. Um, Next week, we will begin another short series. I haven't quite figured out how long it's going to be, but four or five sermons maybe, um, talking about our treasure. So think about what that means. Um, Today, though, we're finishing up the psalm, Psalm 23. We're talking about the second image that the psalm provides for us. The first one we spent two Sundays on. We're talking about the Lord being our shepherd. Now, the last couple of verses uh, has God portrayed as our host. God is the one who throws a party. God is our host. And it may be surprising uh, as a way for you to think about God, but it's delightfully true, nonetheless, that God is our host. Uh, he's the one who throws a party. You need to know this about him because this is what, what he's really like. This is who he really is. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, people both really inside the church and outside the church who presume they know what God is like and would never imagine him to be the host of a, of a great party. Uh, people inside and outside the church have wrong conceptions about God and about the gospel, God is not a cosmic killjoy, right? He's not the great stoic sourpuss in the sky. He's not uh, the one who's always on about hard labor and duty, right? This is not the God that is revealed to us in the scriptures. God reveals himself to be the one who shares his happiness with others. He's happy And he shares that happiness with others. That's what kind of God he is. He is hospitable, and he's generous, and he is lavish with his own joy. He's much more like, you think about him as our father, he's much more like the papa who runs chasing after his little girl to tickle her than he is about the stern father who who sends his child away to boarding school to learn manners and etiquette. And obedience. It's, it's not just that this picture of God is more pleasant to us. I think we would all agree it's a more pleasant picture of God to imagine him as the, the papa who runs after his daughter to chase her with tickling. Right? Um, but it's not just that it's more pleasant, something that we'd like to believe. It's that he tells us and shows us in Jesus Christ that this is true. This is what he really is like. Therefore, you ought to believe it. You must believe it if you want to know God as he has properly revealed himself. So we usually fear that such things are you know, too good to be true, right? to imagine God as uh, someone who's happy, who pursues us with his own happiness, to share it with us, and throws a party. That, that kind of God, that's too good to be true. But in this case, you're entirely free to let it resonate with you. It is not too good to be true. Um, if you, uh, if you want to have a proper understanding of God, then you'll need to know him as the one who throws the best parties. So get it through your thick skull. <laughs> He's out for your good. And he'll never stop. And that's what we're talking about this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, for so many reasons, it's hard for us to believe that you are who you say you are. You are who you have revealed yourself in Jesus Christ clearly to be. 
And we think we can uh, even look at the scriptures for days and, and weeks and months and years and get a right picture of you, yet if we did not have your Holy Spirit to help us internally, to change us, to make us receptive to your word, we would be uh, completely at a loss. We need you to reveal yourself to us in the scripture and to illuminate the scripture for us so that we can see the things that have been uh, clearly written down about who you are and what you are like. And we believe, because of Jesus, that this will be good news for us. So make us receptive to the good news, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's a picture of a feast, and the best stories all include feasts. Uh, feasts are the best times of our lives. It's hard to top a wedding feast in terms of uh, the, the favorite times and moments in people's lives. The Bible begins and ends with such feasts. Uh, the feast in the garden when God gave every good edible thing to humanity for an enjoyment. And uh, at the end, the wedding feast of the lamb in the new heavens and the new earth, where we see God face to face and dwell in his presence forever. Jesus Christ himself was a feast goer. He was a partier. You need to believe that. Uh, on, on at least one occasion, the wedding at Cana, which Sam read about in our gospel reading this morning, he performed some of the duties of the master of the feast. On at least one occasion at one of these feasts that he was invited to, he acted like the host. So God, in our text, in Psalm 23, God is likened to a gracious host who sets an extravagant feast, who will not rest until he has blessed us with his eternal presence says in verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Other religions would have us setting the table for God, right? sweating and toiling to prepare something that might please him. But our God sets the table for us, and he invites us to sit and rest and feast. So many times in the scriptures, these three things that are talked about here um, uh, go together. You bread oil and wine. You can look up how many times uh, if you've got like a Bible program on your computer, an app on your phone, or go online or whatever, you can look up how many times those three things appear together. It's uh, remarkable. Bread, oil, and wine. Bread for basic nourishment. It's the stuff that keeps us alive. Oil, fragrant oil for rejuvenation, for celebration, really. And then um, wine for uh, unnecessary fun. It's kind of over the top. It's not necessary. Um, but Psalm 104 
says this, it's a prayer to God. It says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. You get a lot of blessings that take place in the Old Testament, uh, something like, he, he will make your grain and your oil and your wine increase. Um, and then you've got these religious festivals, the religious stuff, not just the everyday stuff, but the religious stuff, stuff we're supposed to think characterizes our relationship with God. This is what it means to spend time with God as his people, religious festivals and feasts, where bread or grain uh, that was to be made into bread and oil and wine, these things were the offerings. They're the food and drink offerings that we're supposed to bring to the religious feast, and uniquely, I think, for Christianity, the celebrants were to eat and drink the offerings themselves, not just throw them on a fire for the consumption of the deity, but um, we're to eat the bread and, um, and use the oil and drink the wine. And this is what it means to be part of God's people. God set this up. There are these annual feasts that take place for hundreds of years. God practiced this. Maybe you'd think we'd get it through our thick skulls after such a long time that God is happy and he shares his happiness with us. Um, he says, come to the temple. Come and bring your offerings and get together and share with those who don't have any and have a good time. That's what it meant for God's people so long to go to these, uh, so many years, so many centuries to go to these religious feasts. Ultimately, in Jesus Christ, God um, doesn't receive our offerings. He offered himself up for us. In Jesus Christ, God made the ultimate sacrifice. He brought the ultimate offering on our behalf, and now he regularly instructs us to consume the bread and the wine of his offering at the table. He gave himself to us. And he continues always to make himself our true feast. It's not just that he invites us and sets things before us and sits back and watches us enjoy. It's that we have a real participation in him as we come. He invites us. He gives himself to us as our feast, as our basic nourishment, as the cause for our celebration, as this over-the-top joy. He gives himself to us. The Lord is my portion in my cup. The Lord is my portion in my cup. A psalmist says. So it's significant that in our text, David is able to celebrate God's spreading a feast in the presence of enemies. In the presence of enemies. In the life of the son of David, Jesus Christ, he was always going to feasts with his enemies. There was no other kind of person for him to go to a feast with, it's just his enemies. Some enemies were sinners, right? the tax collectors and the sinners, the real bad people. Some enemies were sinners, and the Lord's presence had a transformational effect on them. Right. Um, I apologize. I'm sure every time we talk about feasting, I bring up the movie Babette's Feast. It really is great. If you haven't seen it by now on my uh, multiple recommendations, you probably should see it, but... Um, in it, you've got the picture of a woman whose life is characterized by suffering and hardship and service. And because of her sacrifice and because of her generosity, this whole thing culminates in a fantastic feast 
that has a transformational effect on the entire community, a little community, but the entire community is, is changed. Old bitterness melts away, everyone leaves the party, party uh, singing in arm in arm, right? Relationships have been restored because of the, the feast, because of the extent to which this host went, this hostess uh, went to provide this transformational feast. It's like that with God. It's clearly recorded that people loved being around Jesus, that when he went to the parties, people were changed. People loved to be around Jesus. His cheerful presence had a converting effect on his enemies, at least some of them, these ones who were called the sinners. In fact, he spent his life, all of it, and and he, he gave it to the point of death. He spent his death in order to make these enemies his friends, to transform them and convert them. But there was also another kind of enemy at those feasts, and, um, and his presence among them served to polarize, and they distanced themselves from him, and eventually they sought to kill him. Eventually they'd be the ones who murdered him, this other kind of enemy. Nevertheless, he had peace in the midst of those enemies. He had perfect peace in the midst of those enemies, and his own peace, the kind of peace that Jesus has and shares with us, can bring us good cheer in spite of our enemies, those who would mock us for being Christians, those who jeer at us or seek to do us harm because we belong to Christ. His peace can bring us peace and good cheer in the midst of those enemies. It says in Luke 15, now the tax collectors and sinners, that's the first kind of enemies of Christ, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes, the other kind of enemies, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then he told the parable of the lost sheep, which we've looked at recently. <clears throat> so which kind of enemy are you? Because that's all of us, remember. <laughs> which kind of enemy are you? Are you the kind who flock to Jesus to become his friends? Or are you the kind who grumbled that he seemed to be drawing the riffraff? It's good to be the riffraff. Right? That's who he sets the table for, is the riffraff, for people like you and me. It says in verse 5 of our text, you anoint my head with oil. Um, I think probably we could have a whole sermon on the concept of oil as it appears uh, throughout the scriptures. It's something worth looking at, the theme, uh, the ways in which oil appears and it's used in the scriptures. It was custom, it was customary, apparently, for when you're throwing a party, when you're having a feast, to anoint, for the host to anoint their guests with oil. I think Jesus expected Simon the Pharisee, when it was one of these parties that he went to, Simon invited him into his home and hear this sinful woman anointed his feet with oil and tears and he points out the fact you didn't anoint my head to Simon when uh, you didn't anoint me with oil when I walked into your party so apparently it was a custom in those days maybe it's a custom that you should practice maybe you should expect when you come over to my place for a party you're going to get some oil poured on your head or something (laughs) I don't know but 
Oil wasn't cheap. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't uh, entirely abundant. Right? So to lavish it on your guests, especially a fragrant oil, something that had been mixed, like a perfume, um, so that it was fragrant, these things were not cheap. So to lavish it on your guests meant to share your wealth with them. Open up your home to them, share your wealth and everything that you have with them. It's, it's a symbol of that. <clears throat> to declare your affection for them. To put them in a celebratory mood. Um, it's a picture of God. Throughout the scriptures, it's a picture of God's presence with us that refreshes us, that rejuvenates us, that brings us joy. Psalm 45, it's called the oil of gladness. Psalm 133, we see the oil running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, the, the oil of um, fellowship. Really, it's the oil of the Holy Spirit. Because God is the one who anointed his priests with this oil that was symbolic of the Holy Spirit, and God is the one who puts the Holy Spirit on all of us as his people, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace. So God is the one who lavishes us with himself in a refreshing way, in a stimulating way, so that we become celebrants in his house. Verse 5, again, my cup overflows. This is the cup of good cheer, right? This is not just a cup of water. Um, something to wash down the, the dry bread with. It's, it's a cup of good cheer. God is the master of the feast. We saw it in um, again in that text from John 2, the wedding feast at Cana. Can you imagine basically 150 gallons brimming of the best wine? The best wine, 150 gallons of it for a party. And it says that when he, when he performed this sign, it manifested his glory. It shows what kind of God he is, that he would provide a uh, Full cups, cups overflowing, gallons and gallons and gallons of the best wine for partiers. And uh, Robert Capon says, God makes wine. What he's talking about is that God gives us unnecessary delight. He doesn't just want you to survive. Knowing him means delight, over-the-top delight. And it's a good analogy for all of creation. All of creation is meant to be this over-the-top delight for us, and we've tainted all of it. Um, so we barely can scrape any joy out of the world around us. We're always hungry and thirsty for more, and it's never satisfying, and it's not ultimate. And we've tainted it, and in tainting it, um, what's required for us now to truly enjoy God and all of his good gifts is that Jesus would drink the cup of wrath. He would drink the, the poisoned cup, the tainted cup. He would drain it to the dregs so that he could hand us the cup of good cheer instead, the cup that we did not deserve. He gave to us freely, the cup of joy in God. So surely, the psalmist says in verse 6, surely goodness and mercy and in those words, I think you can get the idea. Uh, goodness is just this almost generic, but like common grace, the stuff of the world, right? Good stuff. Everything is good that God has made. That's coming after you, and also mercy. Mercy, which is the special grace. God himself 
initiating a relationship with you by his grace, tracking you down. Goodness and mercy shall follow me. That means pursue. That doesn't just mean kind of trail back behind me a few steps. It means he's hunting you with his goodness and his mercy all the days of my life. Assuredly, goodness and mercy will follow me, pursue me, track me down all the days of my life, all the days, as long as I live. There's not one superfluous day. And uh, It says in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, every day, to the very end. Work for the good, for those who know God, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that God works all those things together. And this is, so this is kind of a, a precursor to what you see very explicit in Romans 8. His goodness and his mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. It's, it's an insistent expression of confidence. Because a lot of times it's hard to believe that God is tracking you down with his goodness and with his mercy. Because we don't live every day as a great extravagant feast in God's presence where it's obvious who our host is and all the bounty of his provision for us that does not characterize every day for us, knowing full well that life is not all roses, we insist in faithful confidence that he is tracking us down with his love, that all things do work together for good, even though we don't understand how that's, how that's happening. Even in the hard things, he's tracking us down with his joy. He is happy, and he wants to share his happiness with us. He wants to lavish his joyful love on us. He says it over and over again in the scriptures, I know the plans I have for you. Jeremiah 29 declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. It's hard for us to see that because so much in this world is evil and dismaying and depressing, disappointing. There are so many times when things are hard and, and difficult and beyond our ability to manage, well beyond our ability to manage and cope with. Um, But we see in the gospel, which is the revelation from God, of God, of his plans for us, what what God is really like and what his plans are really like, we see it in Jesus Christ in the fact that That even in his death, which is the worst thing imaginable, it's the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the universe, the death of Jesus Christ, God made it to work together for your good, for your glorious good, for your over-the-top good, in a way that it's the best thing that's ever happened in the history of the universe. Because in the death of Jesus Christ, we have complete reconciliation to God by his grace. He takes even those things that we see are, now it's time to despair. Now it's time to commit suicide because this is so hard. This is so terrible. And he will turn it to singing and gladness and joy for us. We see it in Jesus Christ. So we have permission to see it in our own lives. Even if you can't see it with these eyes. Even if you see it only with the eyes of faith until he comes again. And, uh, and it's all guaranteed to us because of the resurrection. Because Jesus didn't just die. He was raised from the dead, and he's seated at God's right hand, and he enjoys God's presence forever. So we can know that where he is, there we also will be guaranteed. It's a sure promise, guaranteed uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us, that all of our mourning will will turn to gladness and joy. Um, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, it says. 
Dwelling in God's house in one sense, that means here, now, exactly here and now, precisely in this moment here and now, uh, where we're with his people. The house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is God's people. It's where he meets with people, and that's here and now during this very hour. Um, But in an ultimate sense, it means our relationship with him and with each other as it extends into eternity. Is that relationship forever, ultimately? True even now to some degree, but ultimately this is future. This picture of the banquet, this picture of the great extravagant feast that God is a gracious host and invites us to and he's pursuing us with his love until he blesses us with his presence, until that lasts forever. That's, uh, that's mostly a future thing, we, we believe. Right? And it's not just a generic kind of a reveling like you have with Valhalla, right? A lot of other religions, a lot of other worldviews and myths kind of paint the picture of the afterlife as a great raucous feast, right? Um, but with no host. Who's the host? And what's the point of all this? It's not Valhalla. It's the new heavens and the new earth where God himself is our gracious host and he makes everything right and he makes us right and he restores our capacity fully to enjoy him forever, to enjoy all the, the good things that he's made and given to us, to enjoy those things with thanksgiving, not to idolize those things and distort them, not to have uh, evil relationships to anything or anyone ever again, but have all relationship restored uh, with Jesus Christ at the center of it all. That's what the new heavens and the new earth will be. Everything made right around Jesus Christ. God is this gracious host. God has prepared for us this extravagant feast, and God will not rest. His goodness and mercy will pursue you all the days of your life until you're blessed with his eternal presence. And we see this about him only in Jesus Christ. You can't find this kind of promise anywhere else in the world. You see this only in Jesus Christ who gave his very life in order to lavish his joyful love on us. So a few uh, brief applications. Um, This kind of thing should characterize us as much as possible, I think. Um, Partying, actually. (laughs) Having feasts, getting together for uh, meals. Maybe we can't all afford to eat like kings every day or even very many times over the the span of our lives. But um, it's not a waste when you spend some of your money, when you spend a lot of your money on having a good time with others, especially in the church. Meals together um, can be a real celebration because of Jesus, because of what he's doing in our lives, what he's done and what he will do. Uh, All of this is a a foretaste of that ultimate feast um, for us. So meals together where we celebrate God's bounteous provision and, uh, and celebrate his hospitality to us by becoming hospitable to others. Meals together, feasts, parties together, these should characterize us as a community. Things like, honestly, potlucks, right? Potluck is your best chance, maybe, for uh, having an amazing feast because you're not providing all of it. Um, It's like a a community thing, right? Everybody brings their best, and, um, and it's great. The most important meal is the Lord's table. The greatest example of all these things and the the great guarantee of all these things is right here in front of us. It's what we do every week. It's the Lord's table. There's a quote from John Calvin in the beginning of the bulletin that says, The Lord's table should be spread at least once a week for the assembly of Christians. And the promises declared in it should feed us spiritually. 
None is indeed to be forcibly compelled, but all are to be urged and aroused. Also, the inertia of indolent people is to be rebuked. All, like hungry men, should flock to such a bounteous repast. It doesn't look super bounteous when you're looking at a piece of bread and a little cup of wine or juice. It's a bounteous repast because in it we have the, the promises of Jesus Christ himself. We're fed spiritually on Jesus Christ as we come to this table for our joy, for our good, so that all the promises of God would sink into us, all of us. In, uh, in God's hospitality, he makes us hospitable. He makes us generous. He makes us lavish others with joy. So part of this, whether we're inviting people into our homes to experience this kind of feast or whether we're inviting people here to experience the ultimate feast, which is God himself given to us and for us, um, part of that has to be going out and finding people, tracking them down, right? being, in a sense, the hands and feet of God's goodness and mercy, pursuing them all the days of their life, tracking them down, maybe even dragging them in, as one of Jesus' parables went. The kingdom of God is like a great wedding feast where people had to be dragged in from the highways and the byways and the right clothes put on them and then put in a celebratory mood. That's, that's part of our job as those who have received that kind of grace from God. A friend of mine said, how are you going to learn how to break bread with sinners unless you realize that's what God's doing with you? That's what God does with you. That's what kind of God he is. The message of the gospel, the message that we believe and proclaim is the party is where he is. So put your faith in Christ and join us there. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us, even to people like us, people who are slow to believe, reluctant to believe, unwilling even to believe, and yet you pursue us and you you lavish us with your Holy Spirit who puts us in a celebratory mood, who enables us to respond to your grace and your generosity with gladness and with singing. And we pray that this gladness that comes upon us because of your great salvation, we pray that that gladness would be contagious, that we would um, imitate you as our gracious host who sets an extravagant feast before us at great cost to yourself, giving your own son so that we would be welcomed into your home and seated at your table and told to rest and enjoy ourselves in your presence forever. We pray that that grace would characterize us in all of our uh, relationships, all of our activities, all the ways in which we engage with, uh, especially non-believers in this world, but with all people, really, that people would um, see us, that they would see the way that we've been transformed from your enemies into your friends, that they would see what kind of people we've become because of Jesus who lives uh, with us and in us by your spirit, that they would say, I want to partake of that kind of joy, that they would want to know our Father who is in heaven. We pray that all of this would be done um, often in spite of ourselves, that you would grant us the kind of joy that truly reflects what kind of God you are, that you are happy and you want to share your happiness with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.